knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Amy Dickman is the newly minted director of Wild Crew at Oxford University in England. She's a proponent of evidence-based conservation. And according to what she says, trophy hunting has evidence that shows its benefit to wildlife conservation. The key thing here is that Amy is a non-hunter and she's a vegetarian and her views causes a little consternation in the social media sphere and that she gets a lot of flack about it. So I wanted to have her back on, we've had Amy on once before, to really talk through where we are, a little bit of lion conservation, just a general conversation around trophy hunting and evidence-based wildlife conservation. So the last time we spoke, uh, you've had a pretty big promotion, huh? As I understand it. Yes, it's been exciting. So I had a promotion in my role from uh, well, Senior Research Fellow to Professor of Wildlife Conservation at Oxford, which was great. That was really exciting. And also have had a promotion up to the Director of the Wildlife Conservation Research Unit at Oxford. So How crazy is that, right? Something that you almost like aspired. Like when we first spoke, when I first got to know you, that was it, right? You're like, man, I can't believe I'm actually a research associate in Wild Crew, right? I'm just okay. this, like, like this peon that's come in and, you know, just like we all are as grad students or research associates, you're like, oh, man, I'm in this, like, system. Now you are running the system. <laughs> I know. It is terrifying, apparently for many other people as well as for me. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, I, I couldn't think of, I don't know you very well. We know each other just from, you know, conversations online and, 
and a couple of podcasts, but um, I have no doubt that you will lead Wild Crew in the places that it needs to go. So congratulations. Thank you very much. I certainly hope to. I think it's such an important time, obviously, for all of us, just with conservation, you know, it can't be easy to get really depressed. So I think if there's any way of using a position to try to yeah, create positive change, to generate all the positive energy we see coming through from students, from collaborators, and actually have that impact, and that's really exciting to be part of. Do you feel that? Like, it's it's tough in my role, right? Like, it's tough to always see the negative and, like, be pushing back against the negative and the negative and the negative. Like, how do we get away from it? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really important. So it is so hard to do. I mean, especially, I think, with children. I think I might have said to you before, but my daughter turned around to me and she's seven and she said, oh, I want to do what you do when, when I grow up. I want to save lions. And, and it made me really proud for a second and then also kind of sad thinking, how many lions are going to be left for her to save? You know, is that, mm -hmm. are we sort of, you know, facing this very bleak future for our children? That's a huge responsibility that we all have. But I think it's impossible. You can't be sucked down by that because otherwise we're not going to be as efficient at trying to, to nudge the direction away from that kind of potential apocalyptic future. So I think maintaining the optimism and, and truly, I do think seeing particularly students and young people and young Africans and collaborators coming in, they're so the enthusiasm, the passion, the energy, you know, I think I have some energy left and I look at them and I think, my God, I am like old and tired because they have all this stuff and that's what you need to really renew that, the new ideas and the new passion for making sure that we have a positive change for conservation. You wouldn't be in the position you are in today if you didn't think it was possible to save it. Totally. I mean, why would you do it? This isn't the best paid job. It isn't the most, you know, it doesn't necessarily get you the highest accolade. There are many other things that you could be doing if you just wanted different um, benefits and different sort of values from what you do. So I think knowing that you're hopefully making a change to people and to wildlife is what drives all of us to do what we do. And I think that's what gives us the rewarding and makes us keep on fighting against, even though we all have those dark days, those dark times when you think, mm -hmm. is it, God, is it worth, is it, worth is, it all just, yeah, is it all just going the wrong way? But no, then you see you see sort of really positive stories and changes and you think that can, it's important. We need to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Amy Dickman, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. For those of you that did not catch your earlier episode with us, would you just go ahead and just introduce yourself very, very quickly? Yeah, my name's Amy Dickman. So I'm the director of Wildcrow Oxford University and a professor of wildlife conservation here. And I'm the joint CEO of Lion Landscapes, a lion project that works in Tanzania, Kenya and Zambia. And let's, for some additional context, you are a non-hunter. Indeed, never hunted in my life. Um, are you still a vegetarian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still a vegetarian. And um, arguably, and I can say this from my perspective, one of the most rational voices out there for, uh, even though you are against trophy hunting, you are one of the voices that says that it is it has a benefit to wildlife conservation. Did I mess that up? Or no, I don't no. want to put words in your mouth. No, no, totally. It's just when people say you're pro or anti something, I'm always like, I'm not pro or anti hunting. I'm pro evidence-based conservation. And while personally, we go. I don't like the idea of hunting, I don't want to go hunting myself, that personal bias that's probably leaning against it shouldn't be what dictates how valuable I think it is for conservation. So when I, I have to look at the evidence, and the evidence certainly shows the weight of the evidence, shows that while there can definitely be some harms from hunting, including trophy hunting, there can also be benefits. And we need to weigh up the relative risks and costs and benefits of those things 
also against the risks and the benefits of things like bans and what that might do and the unintended consequences. So that's why I speak out to say these things are complicated and they're nuanced and we need to look at the evidence and not just our own prejudices. Yeah, I think that is key. What you say is evidence, right? That's in your mind, I, I, there's two things I want to poke at. You're not a hunter, mm-hmm. but you look at hunting a mm-hmm. lot. If you had your druthers, and if you can speak freely, what would you say to hunters to say, guys, just can you stop doing this? Like, is there something that, because we have this perception around who we are. There's this perception of that we get, we get drug across the coals constantly. Mm-hmm. Or maybe turn it around instead of focusing on the negative. Mm-hmm. Focus on this more, guys. Totally, yeah. So I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm just not that kind of person who says to people, do this or, do, or don't do this. Because I think being judgmental is just the death of like nuance and finding common ground and all that polarization. You are certainly diving into your political role as the, the, the director of Wild Coop very, very well in your answers, by the way. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And this is my first podcast in this role. So it's <laughs> like, but I think interesting, I mean, and even on that topic, before I get back to your original question, I think it's also really important to even say that while I have this role, say at Wild Crew, it's not that my view is the view of Wild Crew. I'm not trying to present a unified view. We all have our individual views based on our experiences, our our biases, all of those kinds of things and, and our values and stuff. So, you know, I don't operate a cult and I think people are worried that maybe what I think needs to be what everyone thinks. That's not true at all. You know, I speak for myself, my personal and professional experiences as me being a conservation biologist in this space. And so... To answer that kind of space about what you would say to hunters, I mean, I think hunters and particularly those who get involved in trophy hunting or what's perceived as trophy hunting, and of course, it's such a difficult topic of what even counts as trophy hunting. If you shoot a deer and you keep, um, you know, you keep some part of it and you, you know, whatever, does that make you a trophy hunter even though you eat the meat? You know, these Mm -hmm. mixed motivations are really hard. But Mm -hmm. I think, of course, what gets perceived by hunters is the grinning, we all know this, the grinning pictures over the dead body the you know the looking as if that's the key point the kill and the thrill of that kill that that's what that is what in all of these discussions I tend to have drives most of the animosity towards hunting so yes I think that when people do these things they should be able to do you know whatever they feel is right in terms of not saying people can't post pictures or things but do think about the fact that this is the perception that's being used to demonize it and to control the narrative, whereas actually things like then the conservation benefits of hunting get drowned out by saying, but hunters are evil. And so if we want to step away from a polarized space and a very divisive discussion, we have to say, where is the common ground instead? And the shared interest in conservation, the shared passion for wildlife, you know, that's where we need to be looking at where we have more common ground than where we have differences. Do you think we've forgotten about, and here's where it gets really touchy, right? Because I don't think people go to, and and it's a truth statement, and I'm going to be honest about it, trophy hunters do not go to Africa for conservation. Definitely. They go to Africa to hunt and to to take animals that they believe are prized animals. Yeah. Um, However, the actions, not the motivation, but the actions, the benefits, the consequences, sorry, the, the, the benefits and consequences of that action are the things that we need to highlight. And it's almost a 
a reverse in the psyche that needs to happen and almost a retraining of these individuals to say, yes, to your point, feel free to post the grip and grins. You know, one of you, we want you to be proud of what you do, but we also want you to be proud of the benefits and consequences of your actions that you tend to have forgotten. That is almost the underpinning thing that is going to save African wildlife in the future. Definitely, and I completely agree with you that most hunters, when people say, but, you know, hunters don't care about conservation or hunters go for the thrill of the killers. You know, as I say, I'm not a hunter. I can't speak to the motivations of hunters. But similarly, I have been a photo tourist and I've interacted a lot with photo tourists on very often quite high-end safaris if I'm there sort of being you know, an expert guide or something. And those people equally are not going for conservation. They are going for the experience. And if you said to anyone, a hunter, a high-end tourist, whoever, well, look, if it's about the conservation, just give the money and don't go. Most people wouldn't want to do that because they value the experience. And what the experience is and which aspects of the experience they particularly value is very personal, I'm sure. And so we've got to accept that the people doing these activities are not necessarily motivated primarily by conservation. But as you say, it's the consequence of the revenue, particularly that they put in, that enables conservation. So and it's, it's fascinating. So when it gets back to a lot of these discussions, an awful lot of the discussions end up hinging on the motivation. And mm-hmm. this comes back to a real difference between these kind of virtue ethics, the idea that you judge an action by how virtuous somebody is, or mm-hmm. you judge it by the consequences of what that action mm-hmm. leads to. And I'm very much the latter. I view that mm-hmm. it's not my business whether a tourist or a trophy hunter goes out because they want to spend time in the bush or because they are they do know that they're money will fund conservation or because they just want to tick it off a bucket list. You know, these are all things and there are many more motivations mm-hmm. that that could incentivize people to go. For me as a conservationist, that's not nearly as important as the outcome of what they do and what they bring there. And I think by focusing that more on the outcomes of what in this case hunting might bring and how it can benefit is more important, but not shying away from the fact that there is a kill involved and what that actually means. And I think the more that hunters engage in these discussions politely and I've seen people do it online particularly and and respectfully we do need to break down the barriers and have more discourse across groups so I think that would be useful as well and I think there is a space also for when when people get antagonized and of course there's so much antagonism in this debate I can see that if hunters get antagonized by say vegan activists or someone going at them and going at them there is a tendency then to push back and to you know show some gratuitous pictures of which are just, they are saying, I don't care about your views. But actually what they're saying is also, I don't care about the fact that this motivation is such a weapon in the debate. And Mm -hmm. and they're leading into that. And that's something that I think just is unhelpful. I think everyone's got to realise in those online discussions that for the most part, from the very, you know, from the activist's perspective, the vegan activist's perspective, it's a baiting argument. And all they're trying to do is elicit a response that will further their rhetoric to say, see, at the end of the day, you were respectful to me, but when I poked you enough, you 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 did what you that we always thought you would be. And I think that's from a blood origins perspective, what we've set out from the beginning, from the get-go, which is we want to be gentlemanly in how we interact with people. We want to be respectful in how we interact. For instance, we just, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, 52.1 million people on Instagram just posted about wolf management and, and essentially saying, we want you to relist wolves and the Endangered Species Act here in America. And all we, all we said was, we love wolves as much as you do. 
but we are wholeheartedly against uh, this method of how you move forward. Can we have an amicable discussion about it? On his page, yeah, we didn't get a single bad comment back. We actually didn't get a single comment in response because it, what can you say back to something like that, right? Exactly. And I think if you can say, look, we have common ground here. You're trying to demonize this person or that's on both sides. Let's not demonize the vegans. Let's not demonize the hunters. Let's say we both, the only reason we're even bothering to spend our time engaging in these discussions is because we are passionate about wildlife. And so we have that. There are so many people across the world that don't care at all. And so the, the movements forward will come from these people who have the passion. And it'd be really good if we could work together to make that movement positive and productive and effective for the wildlife that we all value. So that's why we definitely, I agree with you 100%, respect is key. Although just to touch on a point there about, do the vegans just say that to wind up, say the hunters? There's of course, I think, aspects of everyone, you know, people trying to wind each other up all the time on social media. But I think also it's a genuine point that shouldn't be dismissed. People find that the idea of fun and killing for fun deeply, deeply, um, just they just find it totally unconscionable for some people. 100%. And that's something we should recognize. And I think when you get down to that's fine. That view is completely fine. And I just say to people, I, I totally get that. And you might say, and people do say, I, for instance, don't want trophy hunting, even if it means that more animals die worse deaths. Because for me, the fun element of it transcends everything else. And so mm. I accept that. That in their framework is a very logical thing. For me as a conservationist, it clashes with my framework because I value the outcomes and the consequences more. But it's just recognizing that sometimes we're having different arguments when we think mm -hmm. we're talking about the same thing. And, and sometimes just saying to people, it's fine. We're coming at this from different perspectives. We have different frameworks that we're using. Therefore, our judgment's going to be different. It doesn't mean either one is right or wrong. Yeah, no, that's certainly a great point. Um, speaking of social media and being raked across the coals and being poked in every sort of way, you have certainly received your fair share of... Um, interesting debates could i say debates is that um a respectful term for what you've been engaged in on in twitter lately well i'm yeah i am involved in these debates that I mean, it reaches into you know i definitely i've been subject to you know abuse online all kinds of things threats i mean certainly you get the sharp end of it where people are very keen to discredit me because if they discredit me then they can discredit what i say and right and i'm not a fan of that approach in general not surprisingly when when i get attacked but for anyone, actually, I'm not a fan of going after the person who wrote something rather than what was written. You know, mm. I can strongly, I mean, I do not like our current government. I can strongly dislike, say, Boris Johnson. But right now, he might say something around, say, the COP, um, where they're talking about climate change, where I might really be in agreement and reshare something that was said. Because in that moment, I agree with what was said. It's not saying every time you share someone for something, you, you agree with all of their entirety of views and on different things. So I think... It's back to finding common ground and not trying to resort to abuse all the time. Mm. The um, do you? I know that you know we're certainly in the in the business of putting rhetoric out there that says, "Look, gentlemanly, respectfully, here's the evidence. You do it. Adam does it. We do it. Lots and lots of people are starting to do it." In, in your experience, say, you know, look back three years ago to today, do you, is it because we are engaged in the circles that we're engaged in that we're seeing more of it? Or do you truly believe that we are pushing more evidence out there? We are storytelling more. 
we are telling the benefits and consequences better. And as such, we're seeing people like the George Mombiots of the world saying, yes, I still hate it, but... Mm. I definitely feel it is changing, and it's changing incrementally, and whether it's ever going to change enough to combat that sea change of emotion and just people wanting to do the clickbait response and not want to look at it. But I think it's very interesting to see that from three years ago to now, we've seen things like, yeah, George Mambo coming out. That's a big, big voice. He's a very trusted voice in this kind of environmental journalism where he says, because he's known for doing his research. He's known for being honest and saying, this isn't just about, you know, my followers and, and wanting to play to my base. This is about me saying, I believe at least from everything I've read about what he says, that I'm saying what I think is truly what's best based on the weight of evidence that I've seen. And so I think it's really compelling that people like that take the time to say those things. And then also, even when he got lots and lots of abuse about it, still take the time to say, I hear the abuse, I've lost the followers, but I still stick with it because this is important. And I've seen others recently, there does seem to be a change in people getting more of the nuance out there, more media articles that cover it, more willingness to say, this isn't just a simple topic. This is a very complicated one with truly different views that need to be listened to. I've always said that it just takes one big person, mm. just one, to say something that is different, right? Because all that that's all that somebody's that that's been sitting around going, I actually believe the same thing. I just I'm not willing to say it, right? Oh, it, yeah. it speaks to the celebrity crowd here in America and that we have a lot of celebrities that are in the anti crowd that are just, you know, well hammer, 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 hammer. But I can tell you some monstrous celebrities. And when I say monstrous, I mean huge following celebrities that are hunters. Um that will never say that they're hunters because they're afraid of what the backlash will be. But if 10 of them at the same time say, I'm a hunter, all of a sudden, I think you're going to start seeing that circle start opening up, just like we saw with George. Um, Definitely, I think, I do think that. And I think it's interesting. I think it is more powerful when it comes from the non-hunters, someone like George, who is absolutely vegan and stuff, because otherwise it's immediately saying, well, you're going to say this, you're bloodthirsty, you're a killer. It's very hard for anyone to... Because it becomes a personal attack straight away. Whereas for me, people can say, I mean, I'm a tiny voice in this, but people can say, you know, you're a killer, you're a hunter, you don't know anything. And I can say, well, actually, you know, I, I actually do know what I'm talking about here and I'm not a hunter. And and you can sort of push back so it doesn't feel as personal, which means you can persist with it more because you have more resilience to deal with it. But I completely agree. And it's one of the things that frustrates me the most in this topic is that I've been told on very, very good evidence that many of the people who, even some of them speak out against things like, trophy hunting in private believe that it's much more nuanced and that they can see things like conservation benefits but they doesn't that frustrate the hell out of you frustrating so i think if what do you value more do you value conservation which is what we all got into this for or do you value followers and social media likes and just celebrity that's not what any of us got into this for it didn't even Mm -hmm. exist when we got into it so it just it really seems to be a huge sellout if people aren't willing to say I know I'm going to get hate for this. I know I'm going to get pushback. But, you know, I, for instance, never went into lion conservation thinking it was going to be easy or even safe. I just thought most of the threat would come from, like, actual warriors rather than keyboard warriors. <laughs> it's quite different. 100%. So let's – I want to switch to the evidence, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go to the, your love, your passion. Um, you're wearing uh, animal print today, you know, signifying your love of things. Um so let's talk about lions. 
I want to know about evidence and mm. I want to know both sides, Amy. And you, you're the, probably the best person that has it at her fingertips. So let me start with the negative. Let's start with the negative. Is there evidence in certain countries that hunting, trophy hunting is leading to lion populations going down? Definitely. There has definitely been evidence that it can have a negative effect on lions and other infanticidal species particularly. Because if you take away a male who has reproduced and has got young cubs, then as most people know from lion ecology, if you take out that male and you've got dependent cubs, you will likely trigger a pride takeover. The incoming males will take out the young cubs. And then if that happens again and again... It's a detriment to the population. But if that happens again and again, you don't get cubs to recruitment. So that's the problem. You know, normally in a pride takeover, of course, you would kill them. The male would be killed in some form of, you know, naturally, whatever. And then new pride males come in and they reproduce and those cubs. They stay for at least a couple of years and those cubs get to be old enough to survive. So what you don't want to see is lots of the males being taken off too quickly and of an age where they're still going to have these young dependent cubs. And so that's why you need the sort of the age and the area-based regulations. So for instance, mm-hmm. places like Wangi, where there was work that was done here, and it was really good work looking at the impact of sport hunting on lions around Wangi, and the quotas were just way too high. There were more quotas being sold than there were male lions in that population, as far as I could tell. So clearly wildly unsustainable and unsurprisingly driving the population down. Similarly, there is good work from sort of Craig Packer and, and Carl Whitman looking at the age at which you take off lions. Because if you take away a male who's seven years old or older, the likelihood is that he's going to have had pride tenure for long enough to have raised cubs to a stage where they can have that independence or at least be able to survive a pride takeover. But if you're taking a male off who's five or and just maybe got to a pride or four-year-olds or females really detrimental, then those things will drive a population down. So there are absolutely cases. Salou was a good example when, again, the quotas seemed to be too high. There was That was a primary threat. Now, interestingly, those kinds of cases can sometimes be a bit misrepresented, I think, in that, bizarrely, if you had a really well-run trophy hunting area where you were minimizing the other threats, and I'm not saying that was necessarily the case in Salou, but if you had a place like that, actually trophy hunting mortality would be or should be a primary cause of mortality if some say that the male lions, because you're controlling things like the poaching and the habitat loss and the poisoning and all those kinds of things that go up. So it's an interesting, even those kinds of things are often a bit more complicated. You have to unpack what's happening. But in short, that was not a short answer. Yes, there are definitely examples where it can and it has led to declines. And that's why in many of those cases, or most of the cases I'm aware of, then regulations get put in. A wangi, you know, a moratorium got put in and now the the, um, quotas went down a lot. Age-based regulations have been used very successfully in places like Mozambique to try to make sure that the the age of males taking off is at least six and potentially ideally seven. And just the last thing to mention on that, I think, is that it's really important that, to mention that none of these or very few of these threats actually occur in that, that sort of vacuum I described where you're managing to fully control other threats. Usually you've got quite a dynamic situation where you might also have snaring and some degree of habitat loss. and Some sort of illegal offtake. Yeah, other yeah. kind of anthropogenic pressures which are putting pressure on the population, which mm-hmm. means that that additive pressure of trophy hunting could sort of be tipping a population there. So it has to be very carefully regulated. Is there any evidence, uh, I know a lot of people, if not everywhere at this stage, except for maybe wild managed lions, Mm -hmm. most areas are operating under this age-based lion distribution. Is that a fair statement? 
I haven't looked at how many of them are, but certainly those are the recommendations and they are they are ones that I would certainly, when we talked about to the government here about, we put in our recommendations about import bans and making sure that right. any operators are using those age-based regulations because they are, you know, they have been shown to be effective in terms of the fact they can be implemented and they can reduce the offtake of younger animals and it is what is needed for infanticidal species. It sounds it sounds like something that would be put in the NDF when, you know, looking at scientists yeah. and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Is there any evidence that, and line that is seven plus is actually not part of a pride any longer. Is there any science tied to that? Well, no. So this is something that is often hotly debated and, and I think often quite mischaracterized that you can absolutely have an, a male that is older than seven that is still part of a pride. I mean, Cecil was the classic example. He was quite an old male and still had pride and still had young cubs. And so what that actually to me would indicate potentially is that you've got some other dynamics not that aren't optimal in your landscape, because really you don't want 12, 13-year-old males in that space maintaining that pride tenure for so long, because you're going to end up then with genetic issues, with mm -hmm. reproduction potentially, with inbreeding and things. So what you really want to see is a population where a lion is, holds a tenure from maybe six to eight or nine, and then is deposed, and then the new ones come in, and they hold it for long enough. So it's not as simple as saying, and people sometimes miss, just mischaracterize it often, I think, completely naively almost by assuming that these are post-reproductive animals. And that's not true for, for a species like lions. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk to the positive side, the evidence that is, is there evidence to show that trophy hunting is good for lion populations? So again, absolutely, it depends on populations where you look at it. So somewhere like Booby Valley is the classic example where that's been, it was cattle ranching area, they brought in a very small number of lions, and then used, you know, obviously, minimal, very highly regulated hunting, to then grow the population of lions up to I think 500, it got to sort of at the end point. And that's an obvious point of where you had hunting, hunting was generating the revenue, there was hunting, including of lions, and yet the lion population was growing. And so there are absolutely places like that. And I think there are other places, I mean, when we talk, look at where lion populations are increasing, this is where it starts to get really muddy because there are so many other factors going on. It's not as simple as saying where there is lion hunting, for example, lions are going to increase, not the There's case. There's no correlation to causation. So there can be some correlation in places like, and there can even be causation in some places like Booby Valley, where you could say this is very clear that well-managed hunting helped protect this area, pay for anti-poaching, pay for good conservation to happen here. But for instance, you could say in other places that Hunting's happening in this country or in this space, but still lion populations are decreasing. That's where you've got to start to unpick why a lion population is decreasing. And in some places, like you know, the population around Wangi, it may be that sport hunting was having an impact there. In other places, like across much of Tanzania where I work, it's not going to be the sport hunting. It's going to be things like habitat loss and anthropogenic pressures and conflict and things like that, and prey decline and snaring. So those are the pressures, which is why. Yes, the biggest positive that I think trophy hunting in general has is that it provides enough revenue to incentivize the protection of very large areas of land. And when we're looking at different threats, say for lions, trophy hunting is the one threat that it has this interesting duality, whereas it can pose a threat, but it can also offset the threats that tend to be far bigger because it can help protect the habitat against habitat conversion, which is a huge, you know, probably the primary threat. It can also, by maintaining that land as more natural habitat, reduce conflict with people and by providing sort of buffers around national parks and things. And, you know, because it pays for anti-poaching and things like that, it can help reduce, obviously, the poisoning, the snaring, things like that. So I think that duality of threat is really important when we're considering when it's positive and negative.
is there another model, Amy? Like, if you had to dream up something, I know you've thought about this a lot. I know you've thought about, like, is there another model? Is there something in the future that we haven't even, like, a wild idea? There's plenty of models that could work. So, for example, my biggest idea would be a global sort of biodiversity credit system, effectively, where those people who are using up biodiversity credits in all sorts of ways, often the people in the West who are really using a lot of resources and all those things that are damaging the natural ecosystem, should be paying for those things properly by offsets to the people who are not causing that same amount of biodiversity destruction. So people say in rural Tanzania or whatever, and then those people you know, can enable sustainable development through a kind of an offsetting. So a bigger kind of thing of like a carbon offsetting, and I know there are many issues with it, but for biodiversity, those kinds of global payments, and it's happened to some extent. But to me, the real problem is that I don't think the willingness to pay matches the willingness to shout about these issues. And that's what worries me a lot, is that we just don't see it with all the current revenue streams together. We did a paper on this. We do not even come close, not even to half the amount that is needed to sustainably manage or effectively manage protected areas, whether that's parks, trophy hunting areas, whatever, just those with lions. We don't even come close. And that's with photo tourism, trophy hunting, donor aid, um, state aid. So we need a real seminal mind shift to say these areas, these places, these species are fundamentally important and we need to put our money where our mouths are, especially for rich countries, and pay properly for it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the idea i would love to see that we're so far from it right now and the crisis facing species like lions is so urgent that i don't think we can wait for the perfect solution we can push that forward we can talk to decision makers we can try to move that needle and it is moving a bit but right now my primary call is always don't throw away what we've got before we have something better and fundamentally that decision should not be mine or yours. It should be the people in whatever country that is using that technique. So if the UK decides that trophy hunting morally, hunting in general is morally unacceptable, that's completely fine. If that's the will of the British people, you know, I've been burnt by this before and like not going with the majority of the British people with things like Brexit. But in this case, fine, that's fine. Um, then they should ban hunting in the UK. So sort it out locally, work out how to manage your countryside and your wildlife and do all those things without it. And then you're in a stronger position to say, we've done this here. And now we can use our lessons learned to help inform Right, we've built a model. We've built a different model here in the UK. We've tested it on ourselves. We've tested it on our people. We've tested it on our resources. And this is how it's going to work. And now we can take that model and export it to potentially other countries. Absolutely. And I think it's really not recognised in all these debates how significant land area we're talking about. I mean, you know, trophy hunting areas cover more lion range than national parks do. And I think if we were talking about removing national parks because people just said they're morally unacceptable, and that argument could be made for many parts in terms of the same lack of benefits, the same lack of inclusion. So if that was the case, and there was just this massive thing of saying, let's get rid of all national parks, there would be a pushback because people would intrinsically recognise Although those areas have real costs, both financial and non-financial, they also provide massive benefits. And for most people, you it would be obvious, I think, if I ask somebody, what's the benefit of national parks? They would say, well, it protects land for wildlife. And yet, if you ask somebody the benefits of hunting areas, somehow they don't say that. Mm-hmm. And it's that's something I think that's just interesting and maybe needs to be communicated better. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's a that should be the leading 
the leading statement of what hunting outfits are doing in Africa. They're protecting the key thing, like you've mentioned, habitat. Habitat's it. Habitat. habitat is everything. I think it's interesting because if you ask people the national park question first and get them to agree then, and then you ask them about trophy hunting areas, because then they've just they've just recognized this, presumably. So they do value it. And it's an interesting one where somebody would say, well, that's not it's not as important because then animals are being killed. Often animals are being killed even here. There's culling in some, you know, parks, there's all sorts of things that go on. You know, animals are shot for meat. And then it comes back to the where we started about the fun and the motivations and that the outcomes suddenly aren't as important for hunting areas because of a different moral framework being used. Yeah, exactly. Where's the impala that's getting fed in the tourist camps in yeah, certain exactly. national parks? Like, where do you think that came from? I know, definitely. Definitely. And I think also the other thing to get across in these discussions is that it's always characterized because it's so emotive about the meat topic, sorry, the, the fun topic. But when people say this is only done for fun, even I believe from talking to hunters that that's not the case. It's not about just the fun of the kill. It's about the experience and the being in nature and all these kinds of things. But it's much more than just that aspect, of course, for where it's happening, for the communities that are getting revenue, for the national government that is seeing, you know, money come into it from hunting, from the meat is undervalued, I think, and in often food insecure areas. I think it's immoral to take away things like a source of meat and a source of income unless truly there is a better option that's been co-developed with those people. Mm -hmm. No, it's, a, it's certainly not a topic that's going away. It's not a topic that's going away. Um, and we are grateful for people like you and grateful for voices like you. And, um, you know, if there's anything we can do in terms of infographics, like I'd love to, to build infographics that show both sides of the equation because I think that's something that has to be a, a piece of the terminology that's used in hunting to say, look, there's both positives and negatives to this, and we should be okay talking about both of them. You know, hunting is not a, a panacea to itself. It shouldn't be Definitely. put on a pedestal. It has, it has flaws to it. Definitely. I think that's a really important point to get across because often when it gets the battle lines are drawn, you have to pick a camp and whatever camp A says camp B must disagree with. That's not helpful because that is never where we're going to find the solutions. You know, we have to recognize that, that of course there are flaws in hunting. Of course, you know, for me, it wouldn't be the optimal. I, if I could draw you know, my panacea, it wouldn't be the optimal. But, but that's the reality on the ground is that at the moment it's delivering these benefits. And so we can say there are many grey areas. Almost all of this debate is a grey area. And the more that we're willing to be in that grey area and not to be pushed often by sort of antagonism into polarised views and dismissing other people's genuine concerns, then I think the better we will be. Mm -hmm. Well, it's always, always amazing to talk to you. Um, congratulations on your your new role. Uh, again, we are proud of you. Um, and um, we're just thankful for you. We're thankful for the voice. We're sorry that you get so much hate. Um, but um, you handle it with grace. Well, thank you very much. Definitely. And I, yeah, I hope that more and more we can definitely yeah, work together and find more common ground in terms of all of us, all of the different people in this debate and really say, my goodness, let's not waste time fighting. Let's try and find the common ground and say, let's, you know, let's actually yeah, let's actually make a better future for conservation by through our shared passion. Well said, well said. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Pursuing wild game in wild places. 
Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from Hunt Stand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.